On August 13, 2018, at approximately 1340, Officer Coonrod was dispatched to 2825 Saratoga Trail, a reported well-being check. Nicole Atkinson called about her friend, Shanann Watts. Nicole stated she dropped Shanann off around 1.48 this morning. Nicole stated Shanann was 15 weeks pregnant and was not feeling well. Nicole had dropped her off after her business flight from Arizona. Shanann was not answering phone calls or texts and had missed her doctor's appointment. Nicole and her son Nicholas Atkinson went to the Watts residence and observed Shanann's car in the garage. The vehicle still had child seats inside of it. Nicole attempted to enter the front door, but it had a latch which prevents you from opening it more than three inches. Nicole had called Shanann's husband, Christopher Watts, and requested he come home and check on Shanann. Nicole stated Shanann was diabetic, but was not known to have seizures or ever blackout. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we are going to take a look at what exactly Christopher Watts' last footsteps as a free man look like. A methodical plan carried out carefully by a man cool and confident is not what we will see. However, let me extend the offer to you to determine just how clever Chris was in getting rid of his family so that he would be free to start a new one. One with all new first with Nikki Kessinger. If you are new to The Librarian, please, I encourage you to go back to episode one of The All-American Family in order to start from the beginning. See how the perfect family, an all-American dream, becomes problematic, unwanted, shattered. Warning. This episode contains graphic detail of murder, adult theme situation, and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. If you feel this may be too much for you, I suggest that you skip the last part of this episode or have someone listen for you or with you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. At 7.40 a.m., Chris sends a text to Shanann's phone. The sweat still beaded on his brow from digging a shallow grave that Shanann's body lies in with the body of their unborn son. His text read, quote, If you take the kids somewhere, please let me know where they're at. End quote. Chris had followed through with his plan to rid himself of his family. He was now free to start a new life with Nikki, and he didn't think too much more past that. So his first step was, let's go back and cover my tracks. I had just disposed of the bodies, and now I needed to come up with a story on the fly. 
This was not something he thought of prior to murdering his family. This was just something that came to me. I think it may, he may have been hit with the realization that Shanann was very tied to her phone and to her friends. And with direct sales, she had to talk to so many people. And so what was his story going to be? And he came up with this one. He decided that Shanann would leave with the kids after their argument that morning. And he would not know where they're at. And really, honestly, he couldn't care less where they went. Step two in his plan was figuring out just where his co-workers were. He needed to know how much time he had until he needed to present himself as normal as possible. Like I said, he just, at the end of episode two, we figure out, we hear that he murders Shanann in their home and he carries, drags her body down the stairs, loads it into his pickup, puts the girls in the truck. They are still alive, drives them to Survey 319, and there he will kill his two daughters. So he's now got to figure out where Troy is, where his coworker is, and if Cody's coming, another coworker. He needs to know how much time does he have to prepare himself to be calm, cool, and collected. And so Troy lets you know that he is on his way and Cody texts Chris back and asks him to come to 1029. So Chris snaps a picture of the oil leak, the fresh oil that's on the ground and sends it over to Cody. And he's like, man, I'll be there as soon as I can. I've got to take care of this first. And then while he waits on Troy to get out to the land, to the lease, he contacts his supervisor and kind of updates him on where he's at with the leak and what he thinks is going on. At 8.25 a.m., Chris calls Shanann's phone and he leaves a voicemail. The next call he will make is to Primrose, the preschool that Bella and Celeste had attended. He called them and let them know that the girls would not be returning to school, that he and Shanann were moving out of the area. And for me, when looking at this, this was his misstep number one. Why did he do that? If Shanann left with the girls unexpectedly and he didn't know where she went. How would he know they were not going to return to preschool? How could he make that phone call if his story was that Shanann had left with the girls and had left him because he wanted a divorce? Chad McNeil and Melissa Parrish are a couple of co-workers. They arrive out at Survey 319 just as Chris is starting to dig a small hole where the leak is. And Troy says that shortly after he pulls up, he noticed that Chris is not dressed as he normally is. He's wearing an old pair of boots. And normally Chris has on this new pair of red wing work boots. He's very proud of them. He, he you know, he takes very good care of them. For him, I think this may be something of a first for him. And so to show up and see that he's in his old pair of boots and his jeans are tucked into his boots, which normally that is not how he dresses, um, it threw Troy for a second. But nevertheless, other than that, nothing really looked wrong with Chris. And then another little thing pops up that sends off just an alarm, just a little one in Troy's head. It's a very cool morning in Colorado. They're having you know, cooler than normal weather. It's about in the 50s, you know, crisp, fresh morning. 
And Chris is already complaining that it's hot. He hasn't dug a very big hole at the leak site. Therefore, Chris technically should not have been able to work up a sweat and become warm to the crisp morning air. But nevertheless, he's complaining that it's hot. At 8.28, Chris calls the realtor Ann Meadows, and he asks if Shanann had been in touch with her. And she tells Chris that Shanann had emailed her about a week or so prior, talking about the possibility of them selling their home. And she had told Shanann that they needed approval of a new loan before they could really start the process of selling their old home. And Chris coldly tells her, well, we're selling it because we're getting divorced. There is misstep number two. Chris decided after basically that first date with Nikki, his marriage was over and he wanted out. He wanted a separation. Um, and he tells everybody this. When he goes back home to North Carolina, he tells his parents that he wants to be separated from Shania. He's no longer happy. His sister even says... After he says that, he looks the happiest that she had seen him in years. You know, he's been telling Nikki they're getting divorced. Then he's now told the realtor they're getting divorced. For whatever reason, Chris felt that that piece of information would be beneficial to him. However, you are having turmoil in your marriage and now your wife and children are missing. You would not want others to know that there was any sort of rocky waves in your marriage at all because that automatically increases everybody's tingling sensation and you become suspect number one. And since you're the husband, you're already suspect number one. But now that you're going around telling everybody that y'all were going to get a separation and that y'all were going to get a divorce, it really just heightened that. And Chris doesn't see that. And I don't think he realizes just how deep he dug himself. He's only at 8.30 in the morning. He killed his wife at 5 o'clock in the morning. And his kids at closer to 7 o'clock in the morning. He's already dug himself a hole this deep just an hour and a half later. But anyways, he goes on with his day. And around 9.30, Chris and his two co-workers, they leave Survey 319. And this is the last time that Chris will step foot on the lease at Survey 319. Troy said that Chris had walked past his truck going back to his pickup and he turned to the oil tanks. And we know the oil tanks contains his daughter's. But Troy did not know that. But he found it odd that Chris turned around and took one last look before he went to his pickup, got in, drove off, never looking back. And could you say he's kind of saying goodbye? Probably. He probably is. But, you know, we'll never know. Chris is not very vocal in some of the details about what happened in that period. Chris and his team arrive over at 1029 with Cody and they begin working there. And it's only about 10 minutes from Survey 319. Um, so they get there fairly quickly and they begin working. And then somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning, Chris decides he needs to know the lyrics of this song by Metallica called Battery. Metallica is his favorite band. He is just a huge fan. And so for him to look up the lyrics to this song 
was a little eerie because the song talks of killing a family. He had just killed his family. His two daughters' bodies are located in two oil batteries on a lease that Anadarko services. While he's looking at these lyrics, Chris's mother-in-law, Sandra, texts him, and she wants to know if Shanann's okay. And Chris tells her that he and Shanann had gotten in an argument that morning and that Shanann had told him he, she was going to take the girls to a friend's home, but he didn't know who the friend was. That's all he tells his mother-in-law. And that's not what she asked. She asked if they're okay. She didn't ask, did y'all get in an argument? She didn't ask, she didn't need all those details. You could have told her. Shanann said that she was going to take the kids to a friend's house. I didn't get the friend's name. I'm sure she's fine. No, he doesn't say that. He has to insert the fact that they got into an argument. Again, Chris does not see that this is a negative mark reflecting on him, not a positive one. And I guess we could go back and we could say, you know, Chris, when he was younger, would sit around and he would kind of watch how people acted. And at this point, he had never really been around somebody who had gone through the act of killing their family, disposing of their body and dealing with the aftermath. He had not learned the emotional responses needed in order for this to look genuine. So, but still, nevertheless, he goes on and tells his mother-in-law about the argument. So then Chris contacts the hotel in Aspen that Shanann had called. They were supposed to go to this weekend getaway without the girls. They were going to reconnect. They were going to rekindle their love. That was Shanann's hope. And so she had booked them a weekend in Aspen. And obviously they will not be attending that hotel stay. So Chris contacts the hotel in Aspen and he cancels the reservation that Shanann had made. This is misstep number three. We are not halfway through the morning. We're not halfway through the day. And Chris has already committed three giant red flag infractions in trying to not look suspicious. But everything he's done thus far is very suspicious. He just... <sighs> just doesn't know how to react. Then Chris starts getting an onslaught of calls and texts from Shanann's friends and people they know mutually. And Chris is now, his full attention is pulled away from 1029. He's no longer working on that issue. He is literally just trying to talk to everybody who's getting in contact with him because they're all concerned. Where's Shanann? Where's the girls? Nobody's heard from her. She hasn't posted. She hasn't. She's not answering phone calls. She's not answering text messages. She's not doing what she normally would have. What? Where'd she go? What? Where's your wife? And Chris is just like, yeah, I don't know. She's with a friend. It'll be all right. Nicole Atkinson was very concerned about Shanann, and she soon takes command of Chris's attention. She's concerned because not only can she not get a hold of her friend who she just dropped off at one o'clock this morning, her friend has now missed a doctor's appointment she had scheduled for baby Nico. So where's Shanann? This isn't like her. I can't get her on the phone. She's not texting. Something's wrong. And she didn't have a good weekend. You know, she was emotionally beat down. She wasn't taking care of herself like she should have. I need you to come home and I need you to let me in. We need to make sure she's okay. 
And Chris is like, no, it's fine. It's fine. She's fine. She went to a friend's house. It's fine. So Nicole tells him, you know what? I'm on my way. I'm, oh, I'm going to your house at 2825 Saratoga Trail. And if you're not going to take measures and you don't seem concerned, then I'm going to. Nicole is very fine. I'll take control of the situation. So she heads to Chris's house and she's got her son with her. And at 1210 that afternoon, Nicole pulls up to Chris and Shanann's house. And she says immediately, it looks like nobody's home because nobody is home. And so she decides to see if Shanann's car is in the garage. She pulls her car up into the driveway and her son gets on the hood of her car and he looks into the windows of the garage. He can see that Shanann's Lexus is still in the garage and the car seats for Bella and Celeste are still in the car. He can see that just from the window. And immediately that's alarm bells in Nicole's head. She's like, wait a minute, that's, something's not right. If she went to a friend's house and they picked her up, why are the car seats still in the car? She would have taken those. She wouldn't put those babies in the back of a car and not be safe in the travel. She wouldn't have done that. That's just not her. So Chris and Shanann have this keypad that you can enter a code and you can get into the front door and you can issue a code to whoever you want to, and then you can limit how many times they're allowed to access your home. So Nicole goes up to the front door and she pops in this code and she goes to open the front door. It does not open more than three inches. There is a latch, kind of like the latch you would see on the back of a hotel door. It is engaged. And so she can only get the door open so far. And she can see just from that amount of space between the door and the door jam, there's Shanann's luggage. There's Shanann's favorite flip-flops, and she would not go anywhere without them. Where's Shanann? You know, something isn't right. If she left the house, how's the latch engaged? You know, things are starting to be like, hey, wait, this just doesn't add up. One plus one is not equaling two here. So Chris receives a notification on his phone that says that he has a visitor at his home. He has the Ring app. And so when he opens it up, he can see that Nicole's at his house trying to get in his front door. And Nicole's trying to call him. She's called him twice. This is the third attempt. He finally picks up the phone and he tells her, Shanann and the girls went on a play date and I'll call her and I will have her call you, but you need to stop messing with my doors and leave my house. And Nicole's like, no, tell me where Shanann is. So Chris just decides, I'm going to ignore her, whatever. Well, then Chris receives a text message from Shanann's friend, Cassie. Her husband, Josh, decides he's going to text. Well, Cassie talks Josh into texting Chris and being like, hey, man, what's going on with Shanann? Nobody's heard from her. What's going on? And Chris replies, he replies to Josh, Cassie's husband, the same story. She's at a friend's house with the kids. She won't tell me which friend's house she's at. I just know they were, they're there and I'm going to update you when I get home. Just kind of buddy-buddy kind of thing. And he goes on about his business. Okay, so Cassie sends a text to Chris. And it says, sweetie, her car and shoes and everything is at the house. What the heck is going on with you guys that she would totally shut out everything? This is not like her. Guess what Chris does? Chris texts her back 
And he says, and I quote, separation would be best right now if we work through the issues. I really don't want you to think I'm a bad person, Cassie. That does not answer Cassie's question at all. Cassie fires one back. Right now, I don't care about you or your relationship or what type of person you are or not or what I think of you. And I'm not trying to be rude when I say that. Chris is texting with Cassie. And at the same time he is texting with Cassie, he's now talking to the realtor again and providing her with any information as far as like upgrades or, you know, remodels that they had done to the house so that the house at 2825 Saratoga Trail can go on the market and go up for sale. So not only is he dealing with Shanann's very persistent friends who are like, hey, what's going on? Something isn't right. He's dealing with that. Now he's dealing with the realtor because he's decided he's going to get rid of that house as fast as he can. And he's on the job site getting paid to stand around and finger bang his phone, basically. So about one o'clock in the afternoon, Cassie decides, you know what? We're done playing. And she texts Chris and says, Nicole's calling 911. And Chris needed to move quickly if he wanted to keep the police from getting involved. And this is what her text said. It said, right now, I'm worried about your damn wife and her well-being. Nikki is calling the police, period. Shanann is broken emotionally. Her blood sugar dropped out to not eating, and it could cause her to pass out. So unless you want the police to bust your damn door down, you get home and check on your family. Guess what? Chris is like, whoop. Wait, don't, don't call the police. Hold on. So Chris calls Cassie and he's like, I'm going home. I'm on my way. Don't call the police. I'll be there in 45 minutes. And Chris tells Troy, you know, hey guys, I've got to go. Something's not right at home. Nobody can get a hold of my wife. And Troy says that he really didn't seem very concerned about the situation at all. And even on his way home, Chris pulls over to a desolate area because he has to go to the restroom so bad he could not wait to get home. Although later investigators question that moment because Chris says he had to go to the bathroom. But investigators are like, what did you get rid of at that spot? Thankfully, the GPS on his truck pings every 10 seconds it's on. So they know exactly where he stops. There's nothing said that when they go back to that location that he stopped to that morning, if anything was found, but they do know where he went. At 1.36 p.m., Nicole calls the non-emergent line. This is her transcript from her 911 call. My name is Nicole, and I'm calling because I'm concerned about a friend of mine. She's not answering the door. She's not responding to text messages, phone calls, and there's no movement in the house whatsoever. Officer Coonrod arrives at the home and he checks the front door. And so Nicole enters her passcode and it opens and he can't open it all the way because that safety latch is engaged. So he opens it the few inches he can and he announces police department and he waits to hear from noises from Shanann or the girls or somebody. He hears nothing. And so he starts to go around the home and look in the windows and he's not seeing anything through the windows that is out of the ordinary. 
and he goes back to the rear sliding door and he can't open that because it has a bar that is that's got it to keep you from opening that door nicole kept saying that christopher was not coming she had called him several times and he kept giving her different arrival times so officer coonrod contacts christopher by telephone and he asks for the garage door code there's a keypad just outside the garage door and coonrod wants that code he wants in the home and chris says you can't get in the home that way i have to come and use the remote he's like i'll be there in five minutes and sure enough five minutes later chris rolls up and he gets out of his truck he parks his truck in the street. He gets out of his truck, walks up the driveway, you know, enter, you know, says hi to officer, shakes his hand, and then hits the button and opens the garage door. And he goes in the home and he opens the front door and lets Nicole and Officer Coonrod in the home. And they start looking. Chris goes upstairs. The officers kind of check in just everywhere, just like protocol. And, he, you know, he's calling out Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nicole's. She's just going through their home. And so Chris disappears upstairs and into the master bedroom and the officer's just kind of looking around and Nicole's just kind of standing there trying to figure out what's going on. And Chris comes out of the master bedroom and he has Shanann's wedding rings in his hands. And he says that he found them on her nightstand. And then Nicole asks where Shanann's phone and Chris is able to walk over to the couch that is in the upstairs family room and dig her phone from the cushions of the couch and, and show it. It's, he's like, it's right here. And Officer Coonrod asks him, you know, what's the passcode? Chris doesn't know it. Nicole knows it. Anybody else remember it from episode two? It's 013119. It is the due date of Nico Lee Watts, his son, and he didn't know that. Nicole opens up the phone and Officer Coonrod asks if he has permission to go through the phone. And Chris gives him permission and he sees that there's been no calls made from Shanann's phone that morning. He can see everything that's come through, but nothing has gone out. So he contacts Detective Baumhover, Baumhover. I shredded that name. I'm so sorry. And he requests him to meet him at the residence. And Chris kind of tells him how the morning went. He says that Shanann arrived home from her trip about two o'clock in the morning. He was asleep in the master bedroom. He woke up around 4 a.m. to get ready for work. And then they begin talking about them separating. Chris stated it was a civil conversation. They were not arguing. They were emotional and there was crying on both parts. Christopher stated that he had been talking about separating for weeks. Chris stated that at 527 that morning, he backed his truck up into the garage to load up tools and left. Christopher states that he, the reason he's doing this is because he's had tools stolen in the past. So on his Fridays, he unloads his truck into the garage and then he loads it back up on Monday. He says, Christopher says that Shanann was in bed at the time that he left. Christopher states that Shanann told him she was going to a friend's house today with their two children. Christopher states he did not ask Shanann which friend's house she was going to. Chris tells him that he is an operator for Anadarko 
And Shanann's mother calls during this time and she talks to the officers. And she knows something's not right. She is very adamant that Christopher has done something and that they need to look at the GPS on his work truck. And so they take her concern and they kind of go on with what they know as policy, how they have to address this. And so the detective and Officer Coonrod kind of go back over the residence more thoroughly this time. And they find Shanann's purse, her wallet, her phone, her credit cards. Everything was at home. The children's medicine is at home. They observed nothing suspicious inside the residence, the vehicle, or the garage. There is no appearance of an altercation. The only thing that they note is in the master bedroom, the comforter sheets and pillows are removed from the bed. The fitted sheet was next to the comforter on the floor and the pillows were on the other side of the bed on the floor. They did not see a top sheet anywhere. Nicole tells the officer and detective, you know, Shanann works from home and it's extremely unusual for her to leave without her phone. She's part of direct sales. How she makes a living is communicating and she uses her phone to do that communication. And so they decide they're going to go kind of check with the neighbors and see if they observed anyone coming or going from Christopher and Shanann's house. Their next door neighbor, Nathaniel Trinistich, he's on the east side of them. He has a home video surveillance system. And he, on his video, he can see at 148, Nicole's vehicle is leaving Shanann and Chris's home. It does not show it arriving. It just shows that it is leaving. And then at 527, Christopher's truck is backed into the driveway. Nathaniel and Nicole will later state that they had never seen him back into the driveway before. Chris's truck leaves a short time later. The rear of the truck was obscured from the camera by the garage. The video shows no other vehicles coming or going to the home. The garage door of the residence was checked and it was not opened from the outside, but it had to be open and closed from within. So Shanann couldn't open the garage and then it, and then close it from the keypad from outside. She had to either have that remote or she needed to be inside the garage. Chris gives a consent for the detective and officer to go through Shanann's phone. Um, it had an alert that the garage door was opened at 1242 hours. Detective took the phone, took Shanann's phone to the Frederick Police Department. Chris shows his phone, which also shows the same alerts where the garage, where the doors are open. Chris would tell the officer about those same notifications about three times, and he notes this as being unusual. Christopher's demeanor is described as nonchalant. He only asks one time if he should go look for his family. He is advised that Shanann's car was at the residence and he needed him to stay there for now. He did not ask again about looking and he did not seem overly concerned. Nicole and Nathaniel both said Christopher was extremely nervous. Nathaniel said he had heard Christopher numerous times in the past yelling loudly at Shanann. The officers canvassed the neighborhood and no one can remember seeing any vehicles coming or going or anything unusual from the home. 
He left his business card with several residents that had the video surveillance system, and he also requested copies of the times he had determined he needed to look at. He immediately issues a bolo and be on the lookout for Shanann, Bella, and Celeste Watts. You can get online and you can see the body cam footage from this interaction with Chris. And not knowing Chris, never met him before, never knowing anything about his personality. You can see his demeanor is nothing short of suspicious. He is pulling the attention from everyone to himself. And I don't know if he realized he was doing that, but as an introvert like he is, you would think he would see that, but he doesn't. And you can just look at him and look at his body language and you know something is off. Something is not right. He's shifting his weight back and forth. Either his arms stay crossed uh, and closed off across his chest or they're on top of his head as he is bouncing back and forth on his feet. Again, he, he's just socially awkward and not knowing that that's who Chris is, not knowing that he's a socially awkward person. You could see this and you could see his nerves just running a million miles a minute. You could have gave him a hundred cups of coffee and he would not be as suspicious as he was in that video. I just found it really um, convenient that he was able to go upstairs and immediately notice her rings are on the nightstand. He knew exactly where her phone was in the couch. But then when he was asked, you know, what the passcode is, he didn't even know. Nicole knew. Her friend knew. He, the father of the unborn child whose birth date is used for the passcode, did not know that. But a friend who was not family did. Something's just not right there. After the police get done canvassing the area, they file a missing persons report. And Chris begins contacting everyone and kind of letting them know what's going on. And all while he's doing this, he is starting to have a conversation with Nikki. And he's telling Nikki his family is missing. And if it was me, if I was Nikki, bells would be going off in my head right now. I'd be, mm, so like, I don't, you know, I need to, I'll call you back later. I'm going to go talk to the police officer. You know, something just isn't feeling right. It's just convenient that the divorce proceedings, according to Chris, when telling Nikki, were supposed to begin on the 13th of August. His family goes missing that very day. Things just are not adding up for him. Um, Christopher and Shanann's friends, uh, Amanda and Nick Thayer, remember Amanda used to be the director over at Primrose until she took another position. They are just now getting back into town and they are learning that Shanann and the girls are missing. So they go over to Chris's house. And they decide they're going to sit with their friend and support him until they know something. Chris is asked by police officers that are part of the investigation, you know, are all the windows locked? What's the charges in the bank account? And at first, Chris says he has no idea. He can't get into it that, you know, Shanann handles that stuff. Well, then he comes back and he's like, hey, I have a charge for a taxi on the bank account. And when you talk to Nicole, you later find out that charge may have came from Arizona. 
because the girls were using Uber and a taxi to kind of get around. Chris mentions to Amanda and Nick that his home feels empty and he needs his family back. And you could look at this several ways. Um, he's either playing a part, which is very possible, but without him being around somebody who had been through a situation similar, I don't think that's very likely. I think that Chris never expected uh, the disappearance of his family to come to everybody's attention so quickly. I thought he might have had a little bit more time to be with Nikki, and he, he didn't. Almost from the get-go, he lost control of the situation. So him wanting his family back may be more of a I got caught kind of thing, and I don't want to be in trouble. So if they come home now, I won't be in trouble. I think that's more along his lines of thought than, you know, he really wanting his family back. I, I don't believe that at this point he is remorseful for what he did to his family. Chris also tells Amanda and Nick he's contacted local hospitals. He's had no luck. Shanann and both girls have health issues. For them to leave home without their medication is a big thing. It is a huge red flag. So it would be first inclination to contact hospitals. Did something happen? Did they seek medical treatment and nobody was notified? You know, that's a possibility. Not likely, but a possibility. Nick and Amanda stay with Chris till about eight o'clock that night and they offer him to come and stay at their house. And Chris declines. He says that he is going to stay home and he's going to clean the house. That way, when they come home, it's cleaned up for them. Okay, so the question is, is Chris's guilt beginning to eat at him? And he knows that Shanann would want to come home to a clean home. And this is almost a psychotic break. And maybe he's beginning to start to believe that, you know, his own story. Shanann's at a friend's house. You know, they're at a play date. They'll be home soon. And she'll be mad if the house is a mess. So I'm going to clean it. Is he having a psychotic break? Or is this a last-ditch effort to rid the home of any evidence that was left behind that he obviously never thought of? You know, those are two questions that ping in the back of your mind as soon as you hear that Chris declines to stay with friends and opts to stay home to clean the house. Why are you cleaning? Most people do not do that when their family is missing. There are people who clean when they're stressed. Yes, I will give you that. However, when your very tiny children and your wife who is pregnant are missing, generally the last thing you're going to do is clean your home. Just a thought. At approximately 2 a.m. on August 14, 2018, Officer Goodman tries to contact Chris on his personal phone. When the call connects, nothing can be heard but dead air. Chris calls Officer Goodman back at about 2.05 in the morning and gives him his work phone number, saying that there's something going wrong with his personal phone. Um, why is Officer Goodman calling him at 2 a.m.? Well, he kind of needs um, more information about Shanann and the girls in order to make sure that the missing person report is filled out complete and they can get that out um, into the neighborhood and into the city and state and just get it out there so we can try and find them quickly. And so he needs to know, you know, um, what's the, what's their height? What's their weight? What's their hair and eye color? 
And are there any scars or identifying marks on any of the girls? And Chris tells Officer Goodman about a scar that Shanann has that runs up and down right at the middle of her forehead. And she got it from a car accident that she had had earlier in life. And so the only time you can really tell that she has that scar is when it's really hot outside and she gets her body temperature gets hot. And then you can kind of see that scar become more prominent. Chris never asked Officer Goodman if he's calling because he has news about his family. He doesn't ask, you know, is there anything I can do to help you locate my wife and daughters? never shows concern during that phone call. He is having a hard time breaking himself away from the daydream that he is on the way to starting a new life with Nikki. That's what he wants. And in his mind, that's all he can think about. He does not know or does not care to put on a show good enough to say, I'm concerned. Where's my family? Why are you calling me? You know, he waits for them to say why they're they're getting with him. He doesn't initiate anything. At 4.38 in the morning, Sandra Rousset contacts the Frederick Police Department with her concern. She states that she and her husband believe that Chris, their son-in-law, has something to do with her daughter and granddaughter's disappearance. She tells them, you know, the last time they saw him in North Carolina, just a couple weeks ago, he was really acting weird and he was acting out of the ordinary. She says the last time she spoke with Chris was just, you know, the day prior and his concern was not, you know, to go out and find his family. His concern was going back to work. And really, honestly, the reason he probably wants to go back to work is because he cannot leave his home and go to Nikki's without anybody finding out he's having an affair. But if he can go to work, he can go into the office, he can see Nikki, he can talk to Nikki. He is seriously having withdrawals. But Sandra believes the reason he is so adamant about going back to work is that he is going to use something from the oil company or from Anadarko or the oil or some. He's using the oil to dispose of the bodies. And she's right. Only he'd already done it. She also tells Officer Goodman that Shanann could not have fought Chris back if he had attacked her because of her lupus. She doesn't believe that her daughter stood a very good chance against her son-in-law. She also tells the officer that when she talked to Chris, she told him if he was involved, he was going to see her become very irate. He, she threatens her son, son-in-law, plain and simple. And any mother would, any mother would. There's no, I, there's no blame there. You just don't, you don't know what you're going to say until you're in that situation. And if you believe that your son-in-law has something to do with the disappearance, you really become angry because you trusted this person and they broke that trust. Sandra later tells the officer that Chris had called a neighbor and told him that he feels like the police are watching him because he's involved. And they are. I mean, he's not wrong. We all feel that weird sensation when something, when someone is watching us. We know it. You know, you look up and you see that somebody is just staring at you and you're like, weirded out because you could feel them looking at you. Well, Chris feels the police department looking at him. 
And they are. They are. You can go through his discovery. It's like nine, 1,962 pages long. It's extremely long. And they were watching him. They were. There was concern that Chris was not being truthful. And he wasn't. They were right. And you just you go with that gut instinct. But Chris couldn't stand that people were looking at him differently than he felt they should look at him. He was a good man. He was a good dad. He was a good husband. He felt that that's what they should see. Not he's having an affair and he killed his family so he can have a new life. He didn't want him to see that side of him. That's not the good side. He wasn't raised to be that kind of person, but that's the person he turned out to be. On August 14th at 11.45 in the morning, Officer Lines enters the Watts home and she immediately notices strong odors of cleaning chemicals. She looks around the house and she can see it's spotless. There are fresh vacuum lines in the carpet and Chris mentions he's doing laundry. He, you know, the kids' beds have been made. Um, he's doing laundry and he tells them the reason he's done all of this because he had trouble sleeping the night before. Chris is asked if Shanann had used her car to drive herself to the airport and he says no, you know, Nicole took her and Nicole brought her home. Again, Chris shows no emotion when they are talking, when the officers are talking to him and he's not responding appropriately to the situations. The little smirks are starting to happen on his face. The ones that we all watched him give from the front porch of his home. Yeah, he's starting to exhibit those in his demeanor. He lacks empathy, especially when he is talking about his children. His voice is low and even toned. There's nonverbal cues that are very apparent. He's very tense in posture. His arms are crossed majority of the time, which means he's closing himself off to everybody. And when he, when you do get a, a glimpse of eye contact from him, it's nervous. And every other time his eyes are bouncing around. He's not, he won't look you in the eye. When he does look you in the eye, you can, you can read that he is a nervous wreck on the inside. You can. And he is. He, you know, he's on the verge of being caught. KMGH-TV will interview Chris in the infamous front porch interview. The reason they're doing it from the front porch is canine dogs have been um, led into the home and they are looking for signs of an altercation. They're looking for possible, you know, bodies. They're looking for something and these dogs are trained to show that. So as America is watching Chris stand on his front porch smirking when he is asking for his family to come home, the officers are on the inside of his home and the dogs are searching everywhere. And they alert to a couple spots in the home. And for them, that there wasn't a strong command from what I understand, but it was a command nonetheless that said that there may have been an altercation that gone on right there or something. When people have high adrenaline, they tend to leave a scent behind and it usually pulls in whatever area the adrenaline was at the highest. And that's typically where the dogs can sense the altercation. But since the home smells like a dadgum cleaning chemical factory, I'm, you know, I'm surprised they alerted anywhere. 
Nick and Amanda Thayer come back over and they offer their home as a getaway for Chris one more time. And this time he decides he's going to take them up on the offer. After he finishes with the police, the CBI, the Colorado Bureau of an Investigation, um, have arrived in Frederick and they're there to lend their hand with the Frederick Police Department. They think they know that Chris is behind it. They just can't prove it and they need CBI to help them do so. And Agent Tammy Lee and Agent Graham Coder are standing in the Frederick Police Department watching the news as Chris gives that interview from his front porch. And she says, as they're watching, as she said, quote, it didn't look good. We all watched it together and went, this might be bad. They had no idea how really bad it was. They just didn't. After they are briefed by the Frederick Police Department, they begin to quickly start their own investigation to help build off of what the police officers had done. They did one hell of a job. Like I said, they immediately picked up on the fact that Chris was not being truthful. They knew something, there was something more there. And as they looked for evidence, they were having a very hard time finding it. And so they were not incapable of continuing the investigation, they needed something, they needed a, they needed CBI to come in and help them because they were far more trained in something like this than just the police department was. The CBI went ahead and upgraded the missing persons report to an endangered persons and they immediately began to work with AT&T, Verizon, and Facebook to preserve Chris and Shanann's information. Um, they went to work on Chris's work truck. They wanted that GPS. They wanted every ping that pinged on August 13th. And then they wanted to look at his cell phone that was provided by Anadarko. At 6.46 p.m., Chris was asked to come to the Frederick Police Department, and he agreed. As soon as he hung up the phone, he called his parents, and his mother answered the phone. And Chris told her, send dad. And she said, do you want me to come? And he said, no, send dad. And that was it. At 7 p.m., Chris walks into the FPD and he's introduced to Agent Graham Coder with CBI. Chris is escorted into an interview room and he will sit there and answer questions. He is informed that he is not under arrest, that this is strictly under his own voluntary actions that he answered the questions. If he doesn't want to be there, he can leave. Tammy Lee is not in the room with Graham and Chris. She is watching the interview live feed in another room. She has not been introduced to him just yet. So while he's there, Chris is asked to write down a an account of what happened the morning of August 13th, 2018. Chris provides the same story he has been providing time and time again. At 1.48 a.m., the doorbell detects visitor neighbor's cameras that face the driveway did not pick up anyone walking up to the home. At 2 a.m., Shannon gets into bed with me. At 4 a.m., my alarm goes off for work and I proceed to get ready for work. At 4.15 a.m., I slide into bed and begin having a conversation with Shannon. The conversation involves putting the house up for sale. Shanann had contacted our realtor a week prior via email about this as well. The conversation also involved moving along with the separation. 
This was an emotional topic due to the fact that we have two beautiful daughters and another baby on the way. We spoke about the fact that we didn't feel the connection that we used to. We spoke about the notion that the love that we had at the beginning was no longer there. We spoke about just staying together for the kids, but realizing that normally doesn't work. It was a very emotional conversation with crying on both parts. When I got off the bed to go downstairs, she told me she was going to a friend's house and taking the kids there, but also that she would be back. At 5 a.m. downstairs, I make a protein shake, pack my lunch, and fill my water jug. At 5.15, I back my truck in to load up my book bag, lunchbox, water jug container with O-ring kit and loaded various open-ended wrenches from my personal toolbox. At 5.30, I depart for work. At 7.40, I text Shanann and ask if she could tell me where she's taking the kids. At 12 p.m., I text Shanann to call me. At 12.10, doorbell visitor Nicole Atkinson was at my front door. At 12.20, called Nicole to see what was going on and she told me she couldn't get a hold of Shanann either and that her shoes were next to the door and her car was in the garage. At 12.40 p.m., a few more efforts by Nicole are made to reach Shanann. At 1 p.m., I'm on my way home to check on my family. At 2 p.m., I arrive home, open the garage door, and get inside the house. Shanann, Bella, and Celeste are not in the house. Shanann's wedding ring is on her nightstand. Her phone is on the couch. Her purse is still there. The medicine for the kids was still there. The car with the car seats are still there. There is no sign of them anywhere. At 3 p.m., Frederick police officer and detectives are asking Nicole and I questions about where she could have gone or who she could be with. At 4 p.m., police check neighbors' security footage and questions them as well. At 5 p.m., Officer, detective, and sergeant come by to search the house and ask more questions. At 6 p.m., I begin calling around to anyone that I know that could know something or maybe seen Shanann, calling the local hospitals and hotels as well. At 7.30 p.m., Amanda come by to show support. At 8 p.m., Lauren Arnold comes to show support. At 9 p.m., friends Dave Collin and Jeremy Lindstorm come by to show support. At 10 p.m., I lay in bed and proceed to take calls from friends and family for the rest of the night. So that is his written statement as to what happened on August the 13th. For the next three hours, Agent Coder and Chris go over his written version of what happened with a fine tooth comb. An hour in to that interview, Agent Coder expresses that he is concerned because Nicole seems far more concerned than Chris does. And to him, that doesn't look well for Chris. Throughout the interview, Agent Coder is trying to get that across to Chris. What, why are you not more concerned? I mean, I understand that you and your wife are talking about a separation, but why are you not more concerned that they are missing? You, you know, she's pregnant with your unborn son. Your two daughters have not been found. Why are you not concerned? And he literally keeps repeating the same thing. We're getting us, we're going through a separation. We're going to get a divorce. Nothing else. There's not a better story there. And Chris tells him, you know, it doesn't look good on him. You know, he has friends that are already pointing out the fact that 
This none of this looks good for Chris. Chris's constant need to tell anyone and everyone about his and Shanann's separation is why everyone has turned their attention to Chris. Why are you telling people this as your wife is missing? We don't care what's going on in your marriage right now. We want to know where your wife, your pregnant wife, and your two young daughters are. That's all we care about. You can tell us about the rest of the stuff after we find your wife and children. And Chris, all he can say is, we're going through a separation. Well, Chris, guess what? That doesn't answer the questions. It's not answering why all the fingers are pointing back to you. Nobody cares that you are going through that separation. And the more you say it, the guiltier it makes you look. But he never picks up on that. He never does. His constant need to tell them that same story over and over and over. Like the more he says it, it will sell it. And it will finally people will be like, okay, yeah, cool. We believe you now. You know, it's only like the 1500th time you told us, but now we believe you. We understand. doesn't work like that. He swears to Agent Coder at that time, you know, this is my account. It's accurate. I don't know what more you want me to do. And Adrian Coder says, how about you come back tomorrow for a polygraph? And Chris goes, sure. He thinks he can beat a polygraph test. Chris eventually leaves the police department. And it's closer to 11, 1130 in the, the evening when he goes to Amanda and Nick's house for the evening. He's agreed to come back on August the 15th, 2018 to the police department to give them a polygraph test. Chris Watts wakes up and gets ready to go get his father from the airport. It's August 15, 2018, and this will be his last day as a free man. Chris heads off to the airport, and Agent Coder texts him, asking him to stop by the station so that they could kind of make a game plan on what they're going to do today. So Chris calls, and he tells Agent Coder, you know, I'm, I'm picking my dad up, and then we'll be there. And so Agent Coder and Agent Lee begin to prepare for what will happen once Chris steps foot into the police station. At 11 a.m., Chris and Ronnie walk into the police department. Chris was voluntarily walking into a polygraph test. Um, Ronnie is asked to wait in the hallway as Chris is escorted into the interview room that he was just in not 24 hours prior. Agent Coder introduces Chris to Agent Tammy Lee. They're in the interview room. Tammy comes in and she has the polygraph equipment and she's going to set it up. And Chris doesn't know her. He has no idea that she has been watching him through interview and televised interviews. He has no idea who she is. He just assumes she's coming in. She's going to administer the test and that'll be the last he sees of her. He's going to deal with Coder. And so as Agent Lee begins setting up the machine, she's kind of describing to Chris, you know, what each little thing does. She's like, I'm going to attach this. It's going to read, you know, how many breaths you take. Um, if this, this pad you set on will register whether or not you're fidgeting. The thing on your finger is going to tell us if your heart rate spikes or drops. All of these have been deemed characteristics of telling a lie. And she kind of lets Chris take the pre-interview lead. He starts to talk about, you know, growing back up in North Carolina, his relationship with his dad, things like that. 
And the more that Chris has the lead, the more relaxed he will become, which means that the polygraph test will be more accurate. Once Agent Lee has everything set up and Chris is kind of hooked up to everything and he's, she kind of goes through how this is going to work. And then she says, we're going to do, I'm going to ask you some simple questions. And when I tell you to lie, I want you to lie. So, and I think she starts off, you can watch the interview, but I think she starts off with like some math questions, you know, like does one plus one equal two? Yes, no. And Chris answers these very rudimentary questions. Whenever he is told to tell the truth, he does. When he's told to lie, he does. And when Chris lies, that machine goes haywire. She actually has to turn down the sensitivity because he is such a bad liar. And when they're done with those questions, she tells Chris, you know, Dave, I don't know if you noticed, I had to turn the machine down. You are a horrible liar. And that's a good thing. That means that we're going to get some definitive answers here. And, you know, he kind of just plays it off. And you can't really see... Um, what his facial expression is, but I would think in his mind, he's like, I've got this. I can do this. I know how I'm supposed to react if I'm telling the truth. He's got this. But Agent Lee knows he's a horrible liar, and if he lies, they're going to know it. She asked Chris, you know, could you pass the question? He's not, I mean, they're not running the test. So she asked him, if I ask you a question as if, did you have anything to do with the disappearance of your wife? Could you pass that question? And he said, yes. And she's like, could you kind of give me some examples? And Chris is very uncomfortable at this point. He's like, well, you know, uh, you know, he's him hawing around. And so Agent Lee kind of was like, you know, kidnapping, you know, somebody's taken, somebody. So he starts feeding in. And then she asked him, if I asked you if you physically harmed Shanann. Could you answer that question truthfully? And he says yes. And then she wants some an examples of that, of how you would murder someone. And he says hitman. He says shooting. He says stabbing. And Agent Lee says choking. And he says choking. She says smothering. He says smothering. You know, she leads him because I think she knows Chris is not capable of pulling a trigger or plunging a knife into his wife. I don't think, and even I don't think he could have done that. I'm not saying he's not a cold-blooded monster or a killer. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't think he could have caused that kind of damage. I think that's, that's beyond what he is capable of. Agent Lee administers a polygraph examination that is recognized to detect a lie in comparison technique. It's called the Utah three question test. Three questions are defined and then they are reviewed and asked several different ways. The reason they are asked this way is because they're looking to trip you up and the more you have to think about the question and think about what answer it goes with, the more your heart rate is going to spike the deeper breaths you're going to take, the more you may fidget in your chair. And so there are three questions that are focused on. Question number one, did you physically cause Shanann's disappearance? And Chris says no. Question number two, 
Are you lying about the last time you saw Shanann? Chris says no. And question number three. Do you know where Shanann is now? Chris says no. Lee steps from the room after the polygraph test is completed and she removes all of the little things that are attached to Christopher. And she goes outside and she tells Graham Coder that he was deceptive for all three questions. Chris failed the polygraph test. Agent Lee and Agent Coder step back into the room to discuss Chris's results of the polygraph test. He is sitting in the room watching videos of Bella and Celeste on his phone. And I don't know if that was an act because he knew they were videotaping or if he realized that that may be the last opportunity he has to see those videos again. I don't know. Lee immediately informs Chris that it was very clear that he was not being honest during the polygraph test. Chris says, okay, I didn't lie to you on that polygraph, I promise. You know, and he proceeds to try to convince them that the machine was wrong and Chris was telling the truth. He's like, I'm a good person. And he's, and you know, an agent coder and agent Lee are, they're playing the good cop. And then they're like, we know you are. You know, I don't know how you're involved, but it's obvious that you lied to us and we need to know so we can help you. We can't help you unless we know the story. And Chris is like, no, we didn't do anything. They were there when I left. Um, Shanann said she was going to take the girls to a friend's house. That's the last thing I know. They were there. They were there when I left to go to work that morning. And Agent Lee and Agent Coder continue to press Chris. And eventually it is brought up saying that they would hate to see that Chris is trying to cover up an accident or trying to cover for Shanann. It is then insinuated that Shanann may have had something to do with the death of Bella and Celeste. And Chris says no. He says that she was a good mother and that she loved her daughters. The question is asked again. Did Shanann do something to harm Bella or Celeste and Chris says no I don't know I have no clue he sighs heavily and you can see the weight come off his shoulders and Coder asks him you know are we not asking the right question and Chris says no you're asking all the questions and eventually Chris decides he wants to talk to his dad. And he, he tells them, he said, I, I want to talk to my dad. And he shuts down. You know, any, any further information from Chris, they're not going to get anything. And so Coder asks Chris to do one thing for him. He says, if I let you talk to your dad, will you tell your dad what happened? And Chris is silent. Agent Lee and Agent Coder get up and walk out of the room and then you see Ronnie Watts enter into the interview room and the doors close behind. Ronnie comes in and he sits down next to his son. He is fully aware that there are video and audio recording equipment in the room and that they can see and hear what is being discussed even though they're not in the room. And Ronnie said he understood. Chris whispers to his dad that he failed the polygraph test and that they're not going to let him go. And when he is asked why, 
he says to his dad, they know I'm having an affair. This is the very first time Chris admits to his affair with Nikki Kessinger. He has not given her name. However, Agent Lee and Agent Coder know her name. She has come forward at this point and is handpicking information that they need to know about her relationship with Chris. Nonetheless, they know her. They know who she is. After Chris tells his father he is having an affair, Chris proceeds to tell Ronnie the very first confession we will get from Chris Watts. Chris said that he and Shanann had a conversation that morning. It was an emotional one as they spoke about separation. Chris said he went downstairs, then told his dad, quote, I don't want to protect her. I don't want to protect her, but I don't know what else to say, end quote. Ronnie then asked him if she hurt them, and Chris then tells his father that he freaked out and he hurt her too. Chris whispers to his father that, quote, she she smothered them. They were smothered, end quote. He said he didn't hear anything at first when he was downstairs. Then he went back upstairs to say something more to Shanann, and he looked at the baby monitor in the master bedroom. It showed Bella sprawled out on her bed. He thought nothing of it other than she may have gotten hot. When the monitor cycles to Cece's room, Chris says he sees Shanann on top of Cece choking her. He runs into Cece's room, and he said that Cece was blue and dead. He freaked out and did the same thing to Shanann. Ronnie sat shocked at what he was hearing his son tell him. Ronnie told his son, you know, we're going to get you a lawyer, and we're going to see what the hell they can do for you. And it's at this point that Agent Lee and Agent Coder come back into the room. Ronnie does not leave the room. He stands up and takes a step back. And Agent Lee and Agent Coder both take position on either side of Chris. He tells the same story to Agent Lee and Agent Coder. And after a little while, there is a drone shot that is brought into him. It's a full color photo. They've determined that if Chris took the bodies from the home, they were going to be at Survey 319. And Chris asked them, you know, how new is the photo? And they said it was taken that afternoon. Chris then points to a clear piece of area just beyond the brush um, that he had cleared away. And he said, that's where Shanann's at. Then he points to the first tower and says, that is where Cece is at. Then he points to the second tower and says that is where Bella is. Chris is given a pin. He marks an S over Shanann's shallow grave. He marks a C over the battery containing Celeste. And he marks a B over the battery containing Bella. He's then asked to sign and date the bottom of that photograph. Coder then asks him what the piece of fabric is in the brush in the photograph. And... Chris confirms it's the missing sheet from their master bedroom. When Chris is asked about the girls' blankets and stuffed animals, he tells them that they had to have blown away in the wind. Christopher Lee Watts was arrested in connection with the case of Shanann Watts, Bella Watts, and Celeste Watts. And Celeste Watts. No charges were formally filed 
But the news stations broke the news at their 10 p.m. newscast, saying that Christopher Watts confessed to killing his wife and daughters. At 10.45 p.m., while the news was breaking of Christopher's arrest, crime scene technicians were breaking ground at Survey 319, where Shanann lay just 27 inches below. Evidence was collected. The missing sheet, two garbage bags, the top of a rake, and strands of Bella's hair that were found on the oil tank hatch. Shanann Catherine Watts was pronounced dead at 12.05 a.m. August 16, 2018. Her body was taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy. At 12.08 a.m. of August 16, 2018, Frederick Police Department announced that Chris Watts was arrested for the murder of his family. Recovering Cece and Bella would not be easy. Several agencies would need to be involved in the recovery of the two little girls from the oil tank. The Frederick Police Department, CBI, the Medical Examiner's Office, the Colorado State Hazmat, and Adarco employees to walk them through how to drain the oil and water mixture from the tanks. Wiggins Fire Department would need to be there in case there was a, an explosion or fire and the Northern Plain Trunking Company had a tanker on site that was pumping the oil off the tanks and into metal pools so that it could be filtered for evidence. At 10 a.m. on the 16th of August, they began pumping the oil from the east tank. It would take six hours to empty. Agents donned firefighting gear and their SCBA and a gas mask as DT workers removed the bolts from the manway cover. They entered into the tank towards the small deceased female, Celeste Watts. She was covered in oil and still had her pink nightgown on and a pull-up on. The agents moved her body to the manway and began to pass her out of the tank. At 3.44 p.m., Celeste and the agents exited the east tank. She showed signs of skin slippage and the medical examiner's office needed oil absorbent pads to pat her down before they could put her inside of a sheet and zip her into a bag to be transported to the medical examiner's office. Once Celeste was recovered from the tank, efforts switched over to the west tank. It did not take nearly as long to pump off the oil and water mixture. Agents entered the west tank at 7.54 p.m. Bella Watts showed signs of skin slippage as her body was removed from the tank. She was patted down with oil absorbent pads before they zipped her into a bag and took her away. At 7.56 p.m. on August 16, 2018, all four bodies had been recovered from where Chris had left them. On October 1, 2018, Chris had still upheld his story that Shanann had killed Bella and Cece, and he killed Shanann because she had killed the girls. But something broke on this day, and Chris got with his lawyers, and they submitted a plea deal to District Attorney Michael Rourke. He said he would plead guilty to the following charges. Count 1, murder in the first degree, after deliberation, Shanann Watts, a Class 1 felony. Count 2, murder in the second degree, after deliberation, Bella Watts, a Class 1 felony. Count 3, 
murder in the first degree, after deliberation, Celeste Watts, a class one felony. Count four, murder in the first degree, child under 12, Bella Watts, a class one felony. Count five, murder in the first degree, child under 12, Celeste Watts, a class one felony. Count six, unlawful termination of a pregnancy in the first degree for baby Nico, a class two felony. Count seven, eight, and nine are tampering with deceased human body, a class three felony. Chris would waive his rights to a trial. In exchange for his guilty plea, the state of Colorado would not seek the death penalty. Weld County District Attorney's Office accepted Chris's plea deal on the 6th of November. His trial date of November 19th would be changed to a sentencing hearing. On this date, Chris would receive his punishment. Cindy and Ronnie could not believe that their son had entered a guilty plea because he said he didn't kill their granddaughters, and that's the story they knew. They didn't understand why their son was taking the fall for Shanann. And on the morning of November 19th of 2018, Cindy and Ronnie got to see Chris for a moment, and they were told prior to seeing Chris that they were not to talk about the plea deal. But Cindy, the outspoken one that she is, immediately asked her son, why he was pleading guilty to murdering Bella and Celeste if Shanann did it. And she was immediately reprimanded and told that if she was going to continue to ask questions like that, then their time with Chris would be over. He was not talking about it. He was not ready to tell everyone what he had done. That's the, that's the bottom line. He didn't want anyone to know what he was capable of doing. So he held on to the details and simply went with the plea deal that he had requested. On November 19th, Christopher Lee Watts shuffled into the courtroom, his hands shackled to his waist, his feet chained together. He was clad in an orange inmate uniform as he was escorted over to the defendant's table where he would sit between his lawyers. It's at this time that the victim's family, Sandra, Frank, and Frankie Jr., would be able to address the court and address Chris. Their letters were read, and they were devastated, appalled, shocked, and hurt that the man that they were so thankful to bring into their family, who loved their daughter more than they could love her themselves, who they knew would protect her and protect their grandchildren, turned out to be the very man that would take them all away. Cindy and Ronnie were also victims because of their granddaughters being murdered by their son. So they were able to stand up after the Rusex and they were able to speak to their son. Ronnie's letter was read to Chris through their attorney. Chris kept straightforward. He never once broke eye contact with whatever he was staring at in the courtroom that day. As the words that his father had wrote to him were being read aloud to the courtroom. He never showed emotion. He never showed any indication. He tucked his lips in 
and he bounced his leg under the table. Cindy would read her letter, and at one point she would turn to her son, tears streaming down her face, and telling him they would still love him, they would always love him. Again, nothing from Chris. Nothing. Judge Capcow would then hand down Chris's sentence. To counts one, two, three, four, and five, Chris received the maximum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. For count six, the unlawful termination of the pregnancy for baby Nico, Chris received 46 years. For count seven, eight, and nine, tampering with deceased human body, Chris received 12 years for each count. It's obvious that with his five life sentences that he was handed, he would never see the light of day. It should be noted that the 46 years was the maximum amount of time he could be sentenced to. The 12 years for each count were, again, the maximum amount of time he could be sentenced to. As Judge Capcout stared at Chris, he had this to say, even though Chris refused to make eye contact. In his 17 years on the bench, this was the worst and most brutal case he had ever presided over. On December 3rd of 2018, Christopher Lee Watts was moved from Colorado State Prison to Dodge Correctional Institution in Wupon, Wisconsin. On February 28th of 2019, Agent Graham Coder and Agent Tammy Lee visited Chris in the prison. It's during this interview that Chris would give his second confession, and it would be the confession that we heard at the end of episode two. At 12.45 a.m., Shanann and Nicole finally arrived at the Denver airport. At 1.48 a.m., Shanann entered their home. She kicked off her favorite flip-flops, left her suitcase by the front door, climbed their stairs, and crawled into bed with Chris in the master bedroom. It's from there that Chris says that they had sex, as he felt as though Shanann was testing him to see if he was being faithful. A couple hours later, Chris got up, got ready for work, donned his blue fire-resistant shirt and pants, and a pair of old work boots. Once dressed, he went downstairs, made his lunch, and filled his water jug. Then he went back upstairs where he and Shanann had an emotional conversation. Shanann called him out on his affair, and Chris climbed on top of her, wrapped his hands around her neck, and told his wife he didn't love her anymore. Using all of his strength, he squeezed her neck. Her eyes turned red and bloodshot. Her tears mixed with mascara and ran down her face as the man she loved more than anything took her life. Once she had passed, as Chris was wrapping her into the sheet, Bella came into the room and asked her father what was wrong with Mommy. And Chris said that Mommy didn't feel good. He tried to then pick her up, but realized she was too heavy, and so he drug his wife's body down the stairs to the garage. He then went outside, backed his pickup into the driveway, something he had never done before, covered Shanann in two black trash bags, loaded her into the back seat of his pickup, went inside, got his lunchbox and his water jug, 
loaded those into the truck, and then picked up Bella and Celeste and loaded them into the back seat without their booster seats. At 5.45 a.m., Chris pulled from their driveway and headed towards Survey 319. At 6.53 a.m., Chris pulled into Survey 319, got out of the truck, told the girls he would be right back, dragged Shanann's body from the pickup to just beyond the brush, and then he left her and went back to the truck. He grabbed Cece's pink blanket, wrapped it around his youngest daughter's face, held his hand over her mouth and nose, and pushed her little body into the back seat until it went limp. He carried Cece up to the oil battery, opened that hatch, lowered Cece in feet first before dropping her into crude oil. He closed the hatch, climbed back downstairs, went to his truck as his terrified daughter watched her father come to her. She asked her daddy what happened to Cece and would the same thing happen to her. He climbed into the truck and simply said yes. He began to wrap the blanket around Bella's head as she screamed, Daddy, no. Daddy, no. She fought Chris, shaking her head back and forth, biting her tongue several times. But his determination was far greater than her fight, and Bella lost her life to her father. He carried her body up to the oil battery, passing the one that Celeste's body was sinking in, and went to the second one, opened the hatch, lowered Bella in feet first, before shoving her five-year-old body through an eight-inch opening, removing skin from her shoulder and bottom, and leaving hair behind on the hatch. He then went to where Shanann lay in the brush just beyond, dug a 27-inch shallow grave, rolled her body into it, and as she lay face first into the earth, he realized she had miscarried their son, and he was free to have a first with Nikki before he covered her with dirt. Chris has always said there are certain details about the murders that he would just keep to himself. And one of those things is we may never know exactly where he got the oxycodone from. He says that's something he'll take to his grave. He says there are details about what happened the morning of August 13th that he will never reveal to anyone. But truthfully, I think as Chris sees fit, he dishes out just a little bit more information just to keep everybody interested. And it's working. I mean, the crimes are two years old at this point, and we are a nation still sucked in. We still want to know. We still have a curiosity that has not been fed. And we're all guilty. I'm guilty. I'm, I, I took three episodes to tell you about this because I wanted to dig so deep because my desire to know why he would do that to his beautiful wife and his so cute little girls. And he had a little boy on the way. Every man wants a son. And he had it. He had it until he decided he liked Nikki better. In April of 2019, during the time that Chris was writing a book with an author, he revealed the third and final confession. He said, quote, 
On August 12th, when I finished putting the girls to bed, I walked away and said, that is the last time I'm going to tuck my babies in. I knew what was going to happen the day before, and I did nothing to stop it. I was numb to the entire world. I had literally taken my kids to a birthday party, played with water balloons, had an amazing time, sang songs all the way home, gave them both a shower, ate dinner, read bedtime stories, and sang bedtime songs, and still nothing registered. When Shanann had to be somewhere, I always enjoyed taking the girls places and playing outside because it was our opportunity to bond. And still, the night before, I couldn't stop myself from what I knew would occur the next morning. The morning of August 13th, I went to the girls' room first, before Shanann and I had an argument. I went to Bella's room, to Cece's room, and used a pillow from their bed to kill them. That's why the cause of death was smothering. After I left Cece's room, then I climbed back in bed with Shanann, and our argument ensued. After Shanann had passed, Bella and Cece woke back up. I'm not sure how they woke back up, but they did. Bella's eyes were bruised, and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. That made the act that much worse, knowing I went to their rooms first and knowing I still took their lives at the location of the batteries. Shanann Catherine Watts, 34, daughters Bella Marie Watts, 4, and Celeste Catherine Watts, 3, an unborn son, Nico Lee of Frederick, Colorado, died Thursday, August 16, 2018. Shanann was born January 10, 1984, in New Jersey to Frank Rusek and Sandra Honorati Rusek. She was our pride and joy, a true gift from God. We were so blessed to have such a joyful and wonderful daughter whose beauty was that of a doll. Bella was born December 17, 2013, in Colorado. Shanann was so excited to have her first baby girl. She spent every minute thanking God and, and taking care of her precious gift that the Lord had blessed her with. How she loved and cherished her. Celeste was born July 17, 2015 in Colorado. Oh, how Shanann was so excited to have another child because of her battle with lupus. She was determined to stay healthy, and with her love for Celeste, every moment with her was a blessing. Shanann wanted one more child praying for a baby boy. She named him Nico Lee. She had anticipated her son's arrival and knew he would be loved by his sisters and family. On Saturday, September 1st of 2018, a funeral mass was held for Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and baby Nico in Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church. Ronnie and Cindy were noticeably missing, but not due to them wanting to be there. They did not want to cause any more chaos with the media than there already was. Christopher Lee never thought there was an alternative to his plan to start life over with Nikki. He made it mere hours before everyone knew Shanann and the girls were missing, and only minutes after that was Chris suspected in their disappearance. He was not good at lying. He was not good at hiding secrets. 
and he was not good at being a murderer. Will we ever really know what happened that morning of August 13th, 2018? Probably not. But funny enough, I do believe Chris when he says there are details about that morning he will take with him to his grave. Petitions have been started due to the pictures of Shanann and the girls hanging in his cell. Some want those photos removed. They say he should not get to look at their smiling faces anymore, and that may be true. However, I think the fact that he has to see their faces every single day, day in and day out, may be his own form of punishment. Baby Nico would be just at one and a half years old, Bella would be a big girl in the first grade, and middle child Cece would be rocking it in kindergarten. Shanann and Chris would be separated, but I think they could have co-parented well. I do not believe that Nikki was meant to be a permanent part of their lives, but had Chris just told Shanann what he made sure everyone else knew, life could be different. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight for the third and final episode of the All-American Family, The Chris Watt Story. I want to say thank you to John Glatt and Lena DeHurley and Sherilyn Cattle for their amazing work and their books that all center around this tragic story. If you haven't read their books, please go check them out. And truly, the detail they all provide will really leave your true crime curiosity satisfied. I will leave you with one last line from the book, Letters from Christopher. Death ends a life, not a relationship. Much love, the true crime librarian.